We are in Matthew 16, so if you do the maths, we're over halfway. And um, I'm going to be looking at particularly, in a kind of quick fire way, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, one of the most debated passages in the Bible. Like, um, last night they had, um, there was a creation thing that a few guys in the church had been putting on that was here. And for some people, the whole creation thing is their like thing. They're like, oh, I'm ready. This is exciting. It's like a hot debate. It's, it's something to chat about. And it gets people kind of excited and fired up. Passages like that do this for me. Like, passages like the one today where, like, there's a bit of controversy and a bit of some people believe one thing, other people believe another. I love it because it's like we can get into it and be like, no, it means this. What are you doing? So that's what this is. Um, hopefully, in some way, shape or form, it'll be something that will, will help us to understand it. It's not the easiest passage in the world, I must confess. Um, but hopefully, after today, it will be slightly easier. That's my hope anyway. That it, one of the most confusing, controversial passages in Scripture, we'll get a bit of a straight line on and hopefully understand a bit better. So it's Matthew 16, and uh, it's controversial because it's, it shapes how you do church, it shapes your view on church, and really this is one of the key kind of differences between Catholicism and the Protestants. It's this verse, um, and they build uh, a whole lot on this verse, so it's worth kind of seeing um, what it's about. And obviously this month, I think... Next week or the week after marks 500 years since the Reformation and 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the church door. And um, so this is a kind of critical passage in understanding why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. Um, and so it's Matthew 16, 13 to 20 we're going to look at. But just before that, you'll notice I've skipped over a little bit. So last week, Carl was talking about the faith of the Canaanite woman. And there, are, there is some stuff. This isn't the very next bit. There are some things that flow on from there. Um, I've not skipped over them because I didn't want to teach on them. It's just actually some of them are kind of deliberately, I suppose, uh, repetitions of themes that we've already covered. And so it made more sense to jump to the next one. So, for example, Jesus feeds the 4,000, that little known nugget. I mean, it's, it's 4,000 different people plus women and children, but we only recently had a sermon on feeding the 5,000. So my applications and points would be exactly the same, except there was less people. So it's not very exciting. So Jesus feeds loads of people again. That's what happens. Um, again, he provides. He's gracious. Um, Again, maybe it's because it's 4,000 people instead of 5,000, but you don't really hear about that story so much, do you? Like, everyone knows about the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but Jesus does it again anyway. And then if you have a look um, earlier on in chapter 16, um, again, um, the Pharisees are being dodgy. Um, the Sadducees are being dodgy again, and these guys are uh, plaguing Jesus for a sign. So again, they're like, Jesus, we want to see something else. And then Jesus kind of, uh, you'll see the response if you look at the start of chapter 16, says, you guys are experts in understanding the weather. You can tell me by what color the sky is, what's going to happen tomorrow, and you can interpret all these things, but how is it that you've missed who I am? How is it that you don't understand who I am, but you can interpret whether it's going to rain or whether it's going to shine? And then you get the disciples in verses 5, 13, and moaning that they don't have any bread, which I don't understand because they've just taken seven baskets full of leftovers, but they don't have any bread 
So they wanted some food. And then Jesus uses that as a teaching point to say, again, beware of the teachers, beware of these Pharisees, because their teaching ruins the whole batch. Like, just like leaven would ruin the whole bit of bread, their false teaching infects the whole. And then you get to this passage. So there's been this whole kind of section of um, stuff about um, people wanting signs, stuff about people um, wanting more and more information in order to make a decision on Jesus. And then you get this amazing passage of scripture that is highly controversial from 16, 13 to 20. So I'm just going to read it to you. And you might think as I read it, I don't understand why that's controversial, but we'll get to that. It says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's the passage. That's the bit we're kind of going to look at. And there's a deliberate contrast here. If you think about 16, 1 to 4, which I said about the Pharisees, if you read, if you flick back and look at that, that's where they're looking for a sign. That's where they're saying, just one more thing, Jesus. Just give us one more miracle and we'll believe in you. Just one more and we'll go for it. And then you have this contrast with Peter when asked the question, who do you say I am? comes out with this amazing confession of faith. Okay, so there's a deliberate contrast between those that should know what they're doing, the religious leaders, if you like, and Peter, who, remember, is a disciple of Jesus, but at the end of the day, he's a fisherman. He's not, a, he's not being trained in the same way that the Pharisees and the religious leaders have. I don't know about you, but you think of Peter, right, in the Bible. If you've grown up in church or you've been a Christian for a little while, you've probably got an opinion on Peter as a disciple. Personally, I think he's amazing. I think he's awesome. But a lot of people think he's hot-headed, a bit thick, says stupid things, a bit impulsive. And I actually think he gets a bit of a hard time. I know he does a little bit later. He has the whole denial scene and he gets it wrong. But he's amazing. I want you to see that Peter is an amazing guy here. He's the one who walked on water, remember? He's the one who had faith to get out of the boat. Whilst the other disciples were like... I don't know what they were doing, chilling out. They weren't focused on Jesus, but Peter was. For all his faults, he has a hard time, yet he confesses Jesus as the Christ. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. And the question that just came into the back of my mind is, maybe if you're on the fence about things to do with Christianity, is how much do you need in order to believe? How many miracles do you have to see in order to make a decision? Like, it's as if Jesus is saying, you should have seen enough. No other signs are going to be given. What do you need to know? It's almost as if, and I've met lots of people like this that just hedge their bets. Maybe you're one of them. You're like, well, I'll just wait and see. I'll, I'll hedge my bets on whether Jesus is who he says he is. I just would like one more sign from heaven. 
I would like a Damascus Road experience where my eyes are opened and lightning bolts strike the sky and then I'll believe. But I bet you if you say that and that happens, you wouldn't. Because you just say, oh, I need another sign because that was just an accident. And so on and so forth. And we actually never make a decision. You've got Peter who's really decisive and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who kind of make a bit of a mess of it. One of those people, Jesus says, is really blessed. And the other load of people, Jesus doesn't have a great deal of time for. Which is worth noting as well, that actually Jesus has a lot of time for those that are decisive for him. Those that make decisions for him. And doesn't seem to have a great deal of time for those that can't be bothered. Or those that shrug their shoulders. Or those that go, ah, we'll see how the land lies in 50 years time. And that's when he asks the question, who do you say I am? If we were to do a straw poll in this room, we'd probably get many answers that would be the same. But if we went out to Chesterfield and we interviewed the runners as they're running the half marathon this morning and said, who do you think Jesus is? You'd get a whole load of responses, wouldn't you? From son of God to swear word to made up fantasy creature to all sorts of things. You'd get a whole host of answers, right? We can agree on that. And here, Jesus asked the question to the group of disciples, who do you say I am? Well, some people say you're Jeremiah. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're Elijah. And then Jesus directs the question and says, no, but I, I don't care about that. Who do you say that I am? And that's the same question that's directed to each one of us because every single one of us has to make a decision. I have a for or against Jesus. So that same question comes to you. Jesus asks you, who do you say that I am? Who am I? Am I just a prophet? Am I just a great teacher? Or am I someone who rescues? And the response from Simon Peter is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, which means Simon, well, we call him Peter now, son of Jonah. So he's blessed in making the confession. And it seems unspectacular. The blessing that Jesus gives there, the praise that Jesus gives for maybe a statement that you and I would feel comfortable making, seems, just seems a bit big, doesn't it? Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Well done, mate. That's fantastic. And on the face of it, it seems really unspectacular. But Jesus gives massive praise because where Peter does it is important. At the start of the passage, you'll see they're in Caesarea Philippi, which is historically a place which has kind of idol, pagan worship set up. It was a big hotspot for, for Baal and the worship of Baal. It was a big hotspot for the Greek god Pan. And actually, archaeologists, you can go today and you can see it. They found like drawings on caves of kind of worship and idol worship and stuff. And it's in that environment that this question is posed. It's in a hostile environment where there's lots of unbelieving Jews. The question is not given on a Sunday morning in church, who do you say Jesus is? Because I think it's easy peasy to turn around and say the son of God in this environment. Imagine the environment is in your workplace and that question comes. Then it becomes a little more spectacular. Somebody at work in a hostile environment, let's say your work is really hostile to God for whatever reason. And then someone says, well, who do you say Jesus is? And then there's a confession that Jesus is the son of God. It's a little more spectacular than doing it here on a Sunday morning. That's why Jesus is full of praise for Peter, because he's in a place where it's costly for him to say Jesus is the Christ. It costs him more to do that. I think it is easy peasy in, in many ways to sing songs or to say things on a Sunday when you're in church, but a bit harder on a Monday morning. You know, that conversation comes up, oh, you know, oh, all these Christians going to church on Sunday, and you're like, oh, 
oh yeah, we should go to Tesco instead on Sunday mornings. Like, in fact, we have the opportunity there to, to speak into that. But it's harder, isn't it? It's more costly to say you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the promised one to Jesus when you're in the minority view. And that's because it takes faith. That's because it takes your, your making a stand. And I want to encourage you that maybe if your workplace is hard, maybe what you do, it's tough to be a Christian. Um, if people knew you had faith, you know, I know it's hard in some institutions where you can't speak about your faith unless you're asked and all sorts of things. But in that environment, can I just encourage you that when those conversations come up, don't shy away from them because there's a massive blessing in actually confessing Jesus as the Christ in those environments. That's precisely what Peter does. And then Jesus, like blesses him and then gives all these amazing promises to Peter but also to the church as he's kind of representative of that in many ways as the guy who preaches at Pentecost and the church is formed there's just huge blessing from God to his people when we make confessions of faith in difficult environments why is the church growing in the places where the church is persecuted why do you think that is because actually it costs them something. And, and it's not just this casual thing. Like church isn't just like going to the gym. It's something that changes their life. And so people see that. Because if you're willing to step out and say, I'm following Jesus in a place where you could lose your life for it. You've got to really believe in Jesus to do that, haven't you? It's in many ways getting harder, I would say, in the UK. But it's much easier. But in your workplace, it's not as easy as it is to do right now in this moment. So I want you to see here that Peter, he's the only one that speaks up again. I don't know what the other 11 are doing again. Whether Peter is representing them, which is possible, or they're having a nap, or maybe they don't have the same level of faith as Peter, but Peter's the one who, again, says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. He's a bit of a hero in my eyes, true-hearted, passionate, and people like that, that, I mean, we can all be like that, can't we? We can all have passion stirred up and be awoken to be zealous like Peter. I don't think that's necessarily our character, but it's something that we can all have. I think it kind of does something, you know, if we're feeling sluggish. Um, maybe someone that's really passionate about their faith is a bit annoying, but it, but it can prompt us to, to actually awake, if you like. If we're sluggish in our faith, or if we're a bit like, oh, I don't know, but there's someone like Peter on the scene who's like, you are the son of God, who unapologetically is like, I'm going to go for this. It causes something in our heart. And I want to say that as Christians, we should be full of enthusiasm and full of zeal and energy for God. We should be. We just should be. It should be in our DNA. We, could, we can be really quiet, really shy, those kind of people. And that's absolutely fine. But we can still be massively zealous for God. We can still be massively hungry for the things of God and massively passionate for the things of God. I think all too often we let our character inform how we speak about our faith. Whereas actually we should let our faith inform our character. That we should be full of zeal and energy because I think it changes things. And Jesus talks about, even in Revelation, I mean these are stunning words, stunningly hard words to read. When he's talking about writing to the church in Laodicea and he's saying, you're neither hot for your faith, which I'd, I'd really like you to be. You're not cold for your faith, you're lukewarm. Now, I don't drink tea or coffee, but I'm led to believe that lukewarm drink is not nice. Like, and the whole metaphor that Jesus uses there is, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out. That's what Jesus says. If we're not, if we're not hot for the things of God, if we're not following after him, if we're just shrugging our shoulders and going, 
well, it's okay. It's changed my life, but it's okay. I just don't see that being the kind of model here. Peter seems to be modeling how we should respond, even in difficult moments. Um, I remember being at a, a concert um, many years ago now. I don't tend to go to many gigs. Um, this was maybe like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I went to see the Foo Fighters. Anyone like the Foo Fighters? I do. I missed. I tried to get tickets for them on Friday, but they sold out, so I haven't. If anybody has got tickets and wants to take me, great. Um, but I went to see them, and they were supported by a band at the time called System of a Down. And um, that's not my kind of music. The Foo Fighters I like, that's, but that's about my limit. But System of a Down were like another level of aggressive music. But lyrically, I would say they were choice. Um, if every other word was a swear word, that might kind of sum up the kind of music that they played. But also, they were big into kind of blaspheming and putting down Jesus and, and, and having, you know, really kind of knocking that. And I remember going with a mate who wasn't a Christian. And the whole environment, I kind of, when I think of Caesarea Philippi, or when I think of it being hard to be a Christian, it reminds me of that gig. Because I, I stood there and I thought, am I the only one that doesn't like that they're blaspheming? Because everyone else is like singing and jumping up and down and getting sweaty and doing all that. And I'm just stood there like, this is awful. Where's Dave Grohl? Let's get these guys off stage. They're rubbish. And I remember my friend was really struck by the fact I wasn't singing the song. I wasn't joining in. One, I didn't really know the lyrics and I couldn't hear all that well. But two, I was like, no, this isn't what I'm up for. This isn't what I believe. And although it's hard, in one sense, if there were thousands of people there that were going for it, it's almost like a picture for the world. The world and everyone else is going in a different direction, aren't they? The word Jesus isn't something that's like, oh, Jesus, the name that rescues me. It's something else completely. So I understand that's difficult, but I feel like God the Holy Spirit wants to stir up in us that we're full of passion, enthusiasm, and zeal because if we don't have those things in a hard environment, then we're just going to shrink back. But actually, as people that are, are, are those that take the light of God to the nations, I don't think we can afford to shrink back. We, we've got to be those that are bolder than everybody else, even unapologetically bold in our confession of who Jesus is. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Jesus says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Slight sub-point on that, because this should reassure us massively. It's God who does the saving work. Not you, not me. And just as you can, you know, if you can argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven, if I can stand and debate and debate and debate until eventually they're so sick of my voice, they say, yes, I'll do it. And I've argued them into the kingdom of God. They can be argued out of it. We understand that, right? If, if we think our arguments are going to be the thing that win people to Jesus, then they can be argued out of their faith just as easily. But if God does a work in their heart, if God changes something, and that's what Peter does here. In a hostile environment, he's not saving anybody, but he's saying, you're the Christ. He's pointing towards this hope. And so Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, because your dad, Jonah, I'm sure he was a great guy, but he's not the one who's revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has. So it's worth remembering when we are witnessing, maybe we're up against it, maybe work's a difficult place, and we've said already that we're a Christian, and all we got was flack, and it was difficult. It's God who does the saving work. All we've got to do is be faithful. But it's God who does the saving work. God who changes hearts. It's like pressure off. It's on God to do that. That's what Jesus says here. It will be me that changes hearts. It's me that's changed Peter's heart. That he would know 
That he'd be able to make that confession. I've changed something in his heart. And we've got to trust in the goodness and the grace of God that he would do that, that people would see. Whether that's our friends, whether that's our family, whether that's our, our work colleagues in those hard places, whatever it might be, that they would see who Jesus is. And all that leads on to the really... Well, I, I don't think it's controversial, but a lot of people do. The highly debated verse, okay? Which, is, if you've got your Bible there, is the very next one that follows on. And it's this. And I tell you, you are Peter. This is Jesus speaking. And on this rock, I will build my church. The reason it's got a bit of controversy is because on plain reading, it appears that Jesus says this. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Like, it, appear, it reads exactly like that. Exactly as it's written, that's why it's controversial, because it appears on first reading that the church is built on Peter. That, that's the plain reading of it, right? That's how I read it. I read that and I go, this seems to say, on the face of it, you're Peter, and on that rock, Peter, I'll build my church. That's where you get the whole Pope thing from, that Peter was the very first Pope, and so there's been a succession of popes, not in blood, but in blessing. That's how they get around that. Um, the, there's been this blessing that's given to Peter and then given to appointed other people over history. Um, that Peter is the rock on which the church is built. So according to that system, Peter is the very first pope. Okay? Um, I don't think he's poping right now, but I think he starts that when the church starts in terms of their church history. And the key question we have to ask is, if it's that, okay, we've got it wrong, haven't we? Or if it's not that, then what is it? Because that doesn't sit well with me. And I don't think that is right, just in case you were worried. Because the whole Pope thing is they're infallible, right? But Peter, I mean, I don't know if you've read this, 1623, it's like a few verses later, Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan to the first pope. He's not doing very well. So I don't think it can be that either. I just don't think that works. He's not infallible. This is Peter. This is Peter of many mistakes. This is Peter of always getting it wrong. This is Peter who I love. This is Peter who's amazing, yet falls short just like us. It's Peter, just like Fergie, like Grace, like Sophie, like all of us. It's Peter. Nothing special about him other than that he had the pleasure and privilege of being with Jesus and then preaching the very first sermon and seeing thousands saved. An amazing guy, but flesh and blood like us. And it's important we note that because we need to understand here what then is going on. And this is where the original language, not our English language, is really helpful because on the face of it, it does read that Peter is the rock. Um, and Peter in his own letters, if you read 1 Peter chapter 2, like, he talks about Jesus as being the rock. He talks about Jesus being the cornerstone. You know, if I was Peter, and we know Peter's character, he's brash, he's passionate, he's lively. If Jesus has said to me, you are the rock, and I'm going to build my church on you. You know, I wouldn't shut up talking about it. I'd be like, guys, that's me, not the guy I was talking about. I'm the one. I'm that rock star. That the church is built upon. It's all about me. And yet, I, f I challenge you to find that. I challenge you to find that in Peter's attitude. I challenge you to find that in any of his letters. It's just not there. But if it was me, it would be. And if it was you, I reckon it would be. But it's not. 
Because actually, it's not about him. Jesus calls, uh, Jesus is called the rock at no point. Is Peter ever called that? The name Peter in Greek um, is Petros, which means little stone. Okay, this is where you get to play on words. It means little stone. And then the word rock in that same sentence is Petra, which means boulder. So this is where you've got the confusion or the deliberate play on words by Jesus. Because where he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the way of reading that is, um, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. It's not the same word. He's not attributing the same thing to Peter as his name. It's, it's different. It's a different word. And just as the same as a boulder is different to a little stone. Right? I wouldn't call a little stone a boulder. And I wouldn't call a boulder a little stone. I've never tried skimming boulders. You tried skimming boulders? I mean, you know when you try and use a bigger stone than you normally would, what happens? Normally just kind of like dive bombs. But if you use a little stone, you can get like 18 bounces, if you're lucky. Normally two. Um, but a little stone is different to a boulder. So the question then is, if it's not built on, if the church, all of this isn't built on Peter, what then is it built on? What is the boulder? What is Jesus talking about? You can read it like this. You're Peter. And on the rock of your confession, on the boulder of your confession that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God, I'll build my church. In other words, church is because of who Jesus is. Church is because Jesus is the Son of God and because he saves and rescues. You take Peter out of the church, what have you got? What have you got? Church. You take Jesus out of church, what have you got? nothing. You take Jesus as the son of God, the savior out of church, what have you got? Nothing. You've probably got a sect or a cult of some kind. You don't have church. You don't have what's described here by Jesus. It's amazing really that he's saying, actually, you're Peter. You're a great guy. You're an amazing guy. And what you've just confessed is what will build this church. That confession that I'm the Christ is what it's all about. So when we think of what church is, and we often do this, don't we? What church is? Is it, is it streamers and flags? Is it smoke machines? Is it tradition with pews and hymns? Well, actually, it's none of those things. It's Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what church is. All those things are like a bonus or ways of us interpreting and attributing worship towards who Jesus is. They're not what make church. It's who Jesus is and the confession of that. So you take away the preaching of the good news of Jesus. You take away that Jesus is the Son of God. And you're left with, well, nothing really. We're left with just Peter. And Peter can't save you. Peter can't rescue you. Peter isn't going to meet you at the pearly gates, my friends. I know that's what everybody thinks when I get up to heaven and St. Peter will be there. He won't be there. Well, he will be in heaven. Just, ooh, covering that one off. Flipping heck. That's not what I'm saying. He will be there, but he won't be at the gate saying, marks out of 10, zero. That's not his job. That's on Jesus. 
Jesus is the rescuer, not Peter. And so actually how we understand these verses has a massive effect on how we understand church. Do you see that? If you understand it in a different way, you end up with a completely different model. If you understand it in the way that I think is right, think in inverted commas, before the Lord that I think is right, you end up with church has to be all about the fact that God rescues in the person of Jesus and all about us confessing that, all about us turning around and expressing faith in him. And from there, I think it just gets better. It's an amazing statement that follows, isn't it? About the gathered church, about those that follow Jesus. This next line, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's good news, right? Like, I read that and I'm like, come on! Not even hell! Like, not even hell! Not even all power of evil can defeat the church. And I don't mean buildings, because if you look at buildings, there's like chapels closing left, right, and center, isn't there? And on the face of it, you can be like, oh, the church is... But the church is the people. And actually, Jesus says, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Gates in a city were massive in terms of security and power. Okay, that, that, that's what they were significant for. It wasn't about entry and exit as much as it was about security and power. That Look, if the gates are closed, we're secure. And these gates project power to everybody else. We are a secure people. We're a powerful people. You know those houses that are really big and have really long drives and they have massive gates at the end? They don't need to have a massive gate. They could have a white picket fence, couldn't they? But they haven't because it's about security and power. There's this one in Essex, isn't there? And like, I'm one of those people that will climb up the wall to have a peek at what the house looks like because I know they don't want me to look, which is why they've got big walls and a big gate. So I'll do the whole, oh, all right, then it's a challenge. <laughs> but the gates are there as like, we have power, we have wealth, we have status. Look how awesome we are. And then I poke my head over the wall and I go, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> I see your cars now. <laughs> yeah, I see why you've got big gates to stop people like me looking at your stuff. But it's all about power and security. And here Jesus says, all the power, all the security, everything hell has is not good enough. Will not prevail. Does that not make you kind of, like, I just want to go, whoa, come on. I want to be excited. I'm excited in my heart when I read that. I'm like, Nothing. There's that song, isn't there, you know, in Christ alone that talks about no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take me from his hand. No power, nothing that Satan does, no ploy, no attempt can take us from Jesus. Jesus cannot lose his grip on you. He cannot lose his grip on his church. But I tell you what can happen. We can lose our grip on Jesus. He won't let you down, but we can let him down. He will not let go of us if we keep heading towards him. But if we choose to turn around, he's not a dictator. But we have to keep walking well before him on the narrow path. Jesus doesn't lose us. And how amazing. Not even the power of hell, Jesus says, can touch the church. And that's quite a bit of power, guys. But not even the power of hell can touch the church. Then verse 19 which follows on from Jesus winning. That's how I kind of sum up that. Jesus wins, devil loses. Which side are you going to be on? Verse 19 follows. I give you 
speaking to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And uh, this, the, these verses, again, are a bit like, people are like, ooh, what does that mean? That's interesting language. And um, it's charged to Peter initially, but then we read Matthew 18 in like a couple of chapters, and it's extended to the church as a whole. And um, Jesus here is saying, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, to understand what that means, we need to understand what a key does. What does a key do? Lock things and unlocks things, opens things, closes things. So what's being said here by Jesus is the church is the hope of the world. If you're following Jesus, you're the hope of the world. And in that hope of the world, there is the key to the kingdom of God. There's something in that that unlocks it to other people, but also keeps it locked. So what is that thing? Well, I think it's the rock on which the church is built. I think it's the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. For me to come to faith in Jesus, I've got to confess with my lips and believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord. That's what's got to happen. That's the key. The doors are unlocked. The keys of the kingdom are given to the church. The church, above all, should preach the gospel. We should be people that share the message of Jesus above everything else. Whether that's in our song, in our prayer, that's what it should be about. And that should take place in terms of we see it in acts of justice and acts of mercy and acts of love. That the doors are open to people. But at the same time, there's going to be people that reject that. Now, if we reject that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, do the doors stay open? No, they close, don't they? Like, we either believe and they're open, or we don't believe and they're closed. The keys of the kingdom are given to the church, and that's what we're to do. That's why we exist as a church, is that we want to see people one for Jesus, right? I want to see people discover the amazing reality of who he is and how he's changed my life and how he can change your life. Which is why there should be a bit of kind of zeal and enthusiasm and energy and excitement about who Jesus is. Because it's life changing. And it means that the charge will always be there for us to proclaim the gospel. You've got the second bit there that talks about whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And to the church is given the power and the authority in the name of Jesus, to proclaim the good news, but to also to be proclaiming what is right and what is wrong. Like for me to come to faith in Jesus, there's things in my life that, I've, that are wrong that I've got to get right. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Is Jesus' way of saying here, I believe, that actually the church's responsibility is proclaiming this one true message and this one true way of living and getting right before God. And that we do that as faithfully as we can. And though, yes, we will fall short, but we'll come back and we'll get things right. It's a call, I believe, right at the end here, that we get right with God. That we would, in our own personal walk, set ourselves right with God. Get ourselves in that place that, like Peter, when that question comes, we'll be able to say, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're my everything. That's the place we have to get to. Maybe we're not there right now. Maybe we don't even believe Jesus is that. Well, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this, that the firm foundation is Jesus Christ, that if we put our hope and our trust in him, he rescues us from stuff, from our sin, from our wrongdoing, from our shame, and that we go hunting for it in so many different ways that we'd have purpose in life and we'd have meaning in life and we'd have hope in life. And I believe that all that is found in putting our trust in Jesus, that all the stuff that got in the way between us and God is taken by the guy here, Jesus Christ, 
who dies in our place that we might have life and then says to his church, I'm with you forever. Not even hell's going to get you if you keep doing what you're doing. If you keep proclaiming Jesus is Lord, hell won't matter. Hell will not impact you. You will be there. But, but you've got to keep proclaiming. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep trusting. You've got to keep following after me. And you've got to keep rescuing people from, from going that way because the kingdom of heaven the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to the church which means we open and we close through our proclamation something's just occurred to me there um, at the end here on what is a, a controversial passage if you like that we can get really wrapped up in and we can get wrapped in oh let's bash these people they've got it wrong or we've got it right but I think we miss the point if we go down that line in many senses. I think the conclusion from this passage has to be that Jesus has a church, that we can be part of it, that we can carry on being part of it, and that if we are, if we confess that Jesus is Lord and we keep doing that, both publicly like this, but in our own walk, then we're on the winning side, guys. Sometimes it feels like we're on the losing side. Sometimes it feels really hard, but we're on the right side of history by putting our trust in Jesus. And I just want to urge you that maybe you're not on that right side this morning. Maybe you're not right with God. Maybe you know you need to get right with God. Maybe you don't know anything about this and this is all news to you. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it and it might be unlocked for the first time. Then I just want the opportunity. We'll, we'll, we'll just have some quiet, I think, and then the band will come out. To just still our hearts, really. It might be that actually, this morning, I think it would be really good for you as an individual, wherever you are in your walk with God, to confess again that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whether we've done that 50 times or we've never done it. Because it aligns ourselves. And then I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would do something in our hearts that means that on a Monday morning when we're in the workplace or you know, a Friday and we're like, oh, living for the weekend or whatever, we're out of our mates on a Friday night, whatever it might be, that in those moments, we'll still hold true to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we'll realize we're part of something that not even hell can destroy. So let's not worry about what they think or what the world has to say. Let's keep focused on who Jesus is. So.